But I trust in you, O Lord. I say, you are my God. My times are in your hand. Rescue me from the hand of my enemies and from my persecutors. Make your face shine on your servant. Save me in your steadfast love. O Lord, let me not be put to shame, for I call upon you. Let the wicked be put to shame. Let them go silently to Sheol. Let the lying lips be mute, which speak insolently against the righteous in pride and contempt. Oh, how abundant is your goodness, which you have stored up for those who fear you and worked for those who take refuge in you in the sight of the children of mankind. In the cover of your presence, you hide them from the plots of men. You store them in your shelter from the strife of tongues. Blessed be the Lord, for he has wondrously shown his steadfast love to me when I was in a besieged city. I had said in my alarm, I am cut off from your sight. But you heard the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cried to you for help. So love the Lord, all you his saints. The Lord preserves the faithful, but abundantly repays the one who acts in pride. Be strong and let your heart take courage, all you who wait for the Lord. This is the word of God. Father, we pray and ask this morning that you, once again, by your Spirit, would enlighten our hearts and minds to see your Son, to see the Gospel, and to see what it is that you are holding out for us in this passage, that we may go away loving your truth and knowing your truth and believing your truth, that we may also walk in it and practice it. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. You can be seated. It's called the Heiligenstadt Testament. It's essentially a letter written by Ludwig von Beethoven in 1802 to his brothers. Heiligenstadt was one of the, I guess you would call it a suburb maybe, of Vienna, which is where he was when he wrote it. The contents of the letter are heartbreaking. Certainly considered one of the greatest musical geniuses to ever live, by 1802, Beethoven's beginning to realize that he is going deaf. It's like, it's like LeBron James or Kobe Bryant or Kevin Durant finding out that they have polio and there's nothing that can be done about it. Even worse, maybe they're finding out this news before they've demonstrated their almost superhuman abilities on a basketball court and won all kinds of championships. Because by 1802, Beethoven had not written his third or fifth or sixth or seventh or ninth symphonies, which are usually considered among the greatest of his work. He was losing his hearing. And yet, unwritten and unplayed musical dramas are tracking through his head all the time like a dream that you don't wake up from. What's worse, there's strong evidence to suggest that his hearing loss may have been due to the regular physical abuse that he endured as a boy from the blows of his drunk father. And his father's favorite place to hit Ludwig was in Ludwig's ears. 
when he would miss certain notes during his piano lessons. Stupid fool. And so Beethoven sits down to write this letter addressed to his brothers. A letter filled with the agony of knowing what is coming, and yet a letter that's also expressing this sense of artistic destiny as a giant among composers. And in the letter, which he decided to keep, his brothers actually never read it while he was alive, by the way, Beethoven decides that there's only one thing to do in the face of his sufferings. He's going to stand up to it. He will defy it. He will rise above it and he will conquer it through sheer acts of his will. The final piece of music that he wrote, at least that was performed, the Ninth Symphony, is entitled Ode to Joy. I didn't know when I decided to talk about this that we were actually going to sing its tune. We sang it already this morning. God, all nature sings thy glory. But those aren't Beethoven's words. Those words were later added by a hymnist. Instead, Beethoven used words taken from a man by the name of Schiller, who was a German Enlightenment philosopher. And Beethoven used these words and gave them music. And so the first three movements of the symphony give musical voice to all these powers of despair and doubt and suffering, much of what he had experienced, of course. But in the final movement, we hear the great choir sing gladly, just as God's sons hurtle through the glorious universe, so you, brothers, should run your course joyfully like a conquering hero. The Ninth Symphony is Beethoven's cry of belief that through our efforts and through the sheer willpower that we possess, we can rise above suffering. And we can snatch joy out of the sky like a star, and we can drag it to earth, and we can keep it for ourselves. We Christianized it later. It is a beautiful masterpiece of a composition. Its sentiments are lofty and even laudable in many places, But in the end, Beethoven died alone, and he died in despair. In the end, suffering proved to be greater than anything that his God-given genius could overcome. And in Psalm 31, David is also taking us on an artistic journey, a poetic journey, through his own suffering. But the answer that he gives as to how to travel through the valley, it's quite different than that of Beethoven. I want to start by saying there's a lot of ways that we could approach this psalm this morning. We could look at it structurally. We could look at it in terms of its literary structure. We could take it verse by verse or paragraph by paragraph. That'd be a great way to study it. In fact, that's a good way to study really any piece of Scripture. But this is a long psalm, and we don't have time to treat it that way this morning. So instead, we're going to do two things. First, we're going to look at David's experience of suffering in this passage because it reflects so much of our own. And then secondly, we'll spend the rest of our time answering this question. What does it look like 
to walk through the valley of suffering in a distinctively Christian way? How do we go through times of suffering biblically in a way that is different than grumbling and complaining on one side and is also different than minimizing suffering and pretending that it doesn't exist on the other side? Let's start by looking at David's suffering. When reading this psalm, you become so thankful that these are God's words to us because it's so relatable. We don't know absolutely for sure when David wrote this psalm. There's some good theories out there, but we don't know for sure, and we don't need to know for sure, and that's what's so great about it. It applies to all kinds of suffering that people go through. David describes this valley he finds himself in using very holistic terms about his, him, himself and, and about the level of his distress. In verses 9 and 10, his sorrow and depression is so deeply emotional that it's having physical effects. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am in distress. My eye is wasted from grief. My soul and my body also. My life is spent with sorrow and my years with sighing. Sorrow of the soul, sighing of the body. My strength fails because of my iniquity. My bones waste away. Even as psychological medicine tells us today, the soul and the body are so deeply connected that one affects the other. I have a friend who is a gastrointestinal doctor, and what's, he tells me that what's so interesting is he has, of course, people coming in complaining of all sorts of stomach problems, and he runs them through so many tests. And at the end of all the tests, so often he basically just sits down with them and says, listen, There's nothing in there that's causing this. I can tell you by all the other questions that I've asked you, I think you're just really, really stressed out. You live a stressful life. You're stressed out, and it's affecting your bodily health. And what's so amazing to him is how often people respond like, oh, no, that can't be it. I can't be what it is. Give me some pills. Do something. Do something to affect my body because that's got to be what it is. We want to think that we can do things to our body and it's not going to have effects on our minds or our souls or vice versa, but that's just not how it works. And that's not how suffering works either. Most of us, maybe many who are even here this morning who are in the valley or who have been there before, you've experienced that. You know that. I know that. In suffering various types of loss and depression, we feel broken. Or to put it another way, we feel useless. Useless to others. And useless even to the Lord. David compares himself to a broken piece of pottery in verse 12. And with this sense of uselessness comes the loss of a sense of significance. As though we don't matter. And there's no way that we ever could matter. We we feel useless in all different types of distress. And of course, we all know what often happens, what we do with a broken jar or maybe a broken drinking glass. 
most often we just forget about it pretty quickly. And when you feel useless, you feel forgotten. When you feel a lack of significance, you feel forgotten. No one remembers you, as David also says in verse 12. Loss and suffering can make you feel useless and forgotten, which can produce a profound sense of loneliness. This is even worse, of course, when your suffer- the, the cause of your suffering is even broken relationships, as David is experiencing in verses 11 and 12. One of the deepest issues that you will face in your suffering, and we actually talked about this already in our confession of sin earlier, one of the deepest issues that you're going to face in your suffering is to be confronted with your idols. To be confronted with your idols. Suffering doesn't give you idols. Suffering just helps you see the idols that have been there for a while anyway. It kind of brings them front stage so that you can see them. Some of you know this already, those of you who know us fairly well. Ellen and I went through some of the hardest years of our lives in 2007 and 8. We were in the middle, we were pastoring a church up in the middle of Kansas. It was a nightmare for all sorts of reasons. We're also at that point finding out the, the reality of our infertility. There were so many things that were happening in those years of seven and eight that were really, really, really hard. They were the hardest years of our lives. We were suffering. And what, you're, what you want to do when you're suffering is you want to escape. You want to minimize it. You want to drug it in some way, if not with literal drugs, through other some kind of escape. And what happens is that these means of escape, these habits of escape that you, that you give yourself to, they, they quickly become little saviors to you. So I would find myself running to all sources of entertainment just to escape. And the entertainment in and of itself maybe wasn't bad, but it was a way to run. It was a way to run from my suffering. And so I produced habits of running to entertainment to escape suffering. And these habits produced idols in my heart even after the suffering was over. Because you begin to idolize the things that give you comfort, that begin to numb the pain. You, become, you idolize them. They become your little saviors. David speaks of idol worshiping in verse 6. And he doesn't say here that he is struggling with idols. He is actually saying here that he hates them. But it's interesting. Do you know who quotes from this verse later on in the Old Testament? Jonah. The prophet Jonah. Jonah quotes from this verse in the second chapter of his prophecy when he's bemoaning the fact that he's in the belly of the fish. So Jonah is under divine discipline. He's in the belly of the fish, and he quotes from verse 6. And the irony is that Jonah is in the belly of the fish because he has idolized his own sense of justice. He's running from God. He'd gotten on the ship to go to Tarshish, running from God because he didn't want to obey God. He didn't want to go to the Assyrians to preach God's mercy and grace and forgiveness to them because Jonah wanted to see them fry. Jonah wanted to see them judged. Jonah's idol was his own sense of justice and wanting to see people get what they deserve. 
Jonah's confronted with his idol of comfort and selfishness at the end of his prophecy, the end of chapter 4 as well. This happens in suffering. We're confronted with our own idols, and we go back and forth between pushing them away and hating them with one hand and then drawing them into a suffocating hug with the other hand in the middle of our suffering. The last thing David mentions about what his suffering is like is found in verse 22. I had said in my alarm, I am cut off from your sight. And of course, David means God's sight. When you're in the midst of intense suffering, perhaps the worst part of it is the fear, the panic, the alarm, the doubt. A doubt that you have been forgotten by God. A creeping despair that your situation is never going to get better. And can only get worse. You feel trapped. Like being in a besieged city, as David says in verse 21. So much of what has happened in our culture, even this last week, is a reminder of how many of us are truly living in a state like this. A state of depression and loneliness, and feeling forgotten, and running to useless idols that can't fix anything, all endured in intense fear and doubt. Kate Spade, who's at the top of the fashion design industry, she took her own life on June 5. And Anthony Bourdain, who's a person that we love in our own house, a famous food and culture critic. He took his own life on June 8. Both of these people were at the top of the success ladder. Their their lack of hope did not come from being homeless in, in a box somewhere on the street. Famous actor and comedian Jim Carrey once described in an interview what both Spade and Bourdain must have been experiencing. Jim Carrey was asked, Mr. Carrey, have you ever had a spiritual epiphany? Jim Carrey responded by saying, Well, I guess just getting to the place where you have everything everybody has ever desired and realizing you are still unhappy. And that you can still be unhappy is a shock when you have accomplished everything you ever dreamt of and more. And then you realize, my gosh, it's not about this. And I wish for everyone to be able to accomplish those things so that they can see that. In other words, the best epiphany that Jim Carrey could think of was what it was like to realize that your idols don't satisfy in the end. And sadly, both Anthony Bourdain and Kate Spade, they experienced this epiphany, as did Beethoven, as did King David. And it wasn't, it wasn't an answer for their suffering. Suffering is a reality 
It's not a figment of one's imagination, as many Eastern religions tell us. It's not an illusion. It's real. It's one of the nice things about Christianity. It takes suffering very, very seriously. It doesn't tell you that you're crazy when you're suffering. It takes it legitimately. It's a reality for all of us. Not just for the successful and wealthy and not just for the poor. It's universal. And so for the Christian, the question becomes not should we suffer or can we avoid suffering? The question rather in Scripture is how do we suffer? What does it look like to travel the valley of suffering in a distinctively Christian way? And it seems to me when answering that question, we have essentially two options before us. We can either worship God in our suffering, or we can worship ourselves by placing the focus of our suffering on ourselves. And when we choose to make our suffering about us, we tend to do that, most of us, we tend to do that in one of two unhelpful directions both of which serve kind of our own self-glory, our own pride. One direction that many of us try to take when we are worshiping ourselves and suffering, one of the directions that we can take is to minimize it, to minimize our suffering. For many of us, we face suffering by denying the worst of its realities. We don't want people to see us hurt. We feel very uncomfortable when others are hurting around us. We offer them trite answers or sometimes even, in one sense, shame them in subtle ways for feeling so bad because their suffering makes us feel uncomfortable. And so our response to their suffering is actually really one that serves our own selfishness, not them. And the flip side of that is that we don't want to share our pain with others either because we're ashamed of our own suffering. It exposes us. Suffering does us. It exposes us as being weak. It exposes us as being insufficient to take care of our own problems, of being not able to outthink or outwit our own problems. And this strikes at our pride strikes at our self-glory, and we want to protect this. We worship it, in fact, above all else. In the end, though, this isn't an answer for our suffering going this path. It just increases our loneliness. David doesn't do this. Verse 7, I will rejoice and be glad in your steadfast love because you have seen my affliction. And you have known the distress of my soul. David finds security and assurance and even joy in being known in the midst of his suffering. David knows that God knows. And one of the chief ways that God makes his own knowledge of your suffering present to you and present to me is through other people. By surrounding us with other people that know and can minister his comfort to us. 
But the other unhelpful direction that we go when we worship the self in the valley of suffering is by maximizing our pain. By turning ourselves into rock star victims. Self-victimization, claiming victim status, status, it's very popular. It's very powerful and popular in our current cultural moment. Because if you can successfully label yourself the victim, then you have immediate power in the conversation. Power like nobody else has it. You're the only one that gets to take the stage. You're the only one that gets to hold the microphone. No one else gets to challenge you when you're the hurting victim. And so it's a position of immense power. And this isn't just true for various sociological groups on the macro-cultural level. It's very true on an individual basis. It's true in a marital dispute. It's true in a family conflict. But we also have another reason for sprinting against the other to claim victim status. It's not just one of the fastest ways to seize power. It's also the fastest way to feel justified. Because if I'm the victim, I think to myself that I'm the one who's been wronged. And if I've been wronged, I can't be wrong myself at the same time. That's a very false perspective, actually. But we all believe it. We call it self-victimization. The Bible calls it grumbling and complaining. This is what the Israelites are doing as they wander in the wilderness. They're tired of always waiting on God to give them water and to give them food. They're tired of the intense state of dependence on God that they're daily required to embrace. They want to dig their own wells. They want to plant their own fields and pasture their own flocks. Their needs, however, are more than met But they get so tired of this situation that they cast themselves as the worst of victims and they grab Moses and Aaron and they prepare to stone them for leading them into the wilderness. And they feel very justified in doing this. They then feel so justified that they blame God for taking them into a desert instead of leaving them as slaves in Egypt. And what's God's response? Well, he's angry. Why? Because they've insulted his deity. They've concluded that that he isn't just, that he isn't kind, that he isn't faithful to his promises, that he isn't powerful, that he has forgotten them, that he doesn't keep his promises, and he's a liar. Because when we grumble and when we complain, we never grumble against anyone more than we grumble against God. God who rules every moment of our lives. And so what does David do? David worships God in the valley. 
Grumbling and complaining means ignoring and sidelining the ways in which God is being faithful, the ways in which God is providing for you in the midst of your suffering. And so David, David in Psalm 31 is very honest about his suffering. He describes it in great detail, as we've already seen. He's not hiding it. He's not pretending it's not there. But he's also keeping before him who God is and what God has done and what he's even doing now for him in the midst of it. David keeps a right declaration of faith before his mind and a right commitment of trust before his heart. He keeps a right declaration of faith before his mind and he keeps a right commitment of trust before his heart. Throughout this psalm, we find David declaring with his faith what his emotions may have a very difficult time accepting. And this faith is fixed upon who God is, not just what he's done. In verse 15, God is sovereign over every aspect of David's life. David doesn't think God needs to be defended as though God were somehow on trial, as though the created created could ever accuse the creator of wrongdoing. In fact, in verse 23, David says that God is just. He's the kind of God who rewards righteousness and repays evil with judgment. For David, injustice is a problem in human characters, but it's not a problem in God's character. In verse 7, God knows all about David's suffering. And in verse 19, God knows the difference between those who are his and those who are not. He is a God who knows all things and is never taken by surprise. David's suffering hasn't snuck up on God like a jack-in-the-box. In verse 20, God is very present to those who take shelter in him, to those who do exactly what David is doing in this psalm, worship him and entrust themselves to him in their suffering and in their persecution. For David, God rules the heavens and earth from outside of time, but he simultaneously makes himself very present to us because he's big enough to do both. And perhaps the quality of God that David praises the most in this psalm is found in verses 7, 16, and 21, where David declares faith in God's steadfast love. God's steadfast love is his own commitment to his promises, to care for David, to always deal with him in a fatherly love, to forgive David of his sins, and to redeem him from the power of his enemies. God has made promises to David. And David is saying in these verses that God is faithful, that he is a promise-keeping God. Verses 7 and 8 bring this out most vividly. After rejoicing in God's steadfast love, demonstrating the fact that God knows all about his distress, in verse 7, David says this in verse 8, And you have not delivered me into the hand of the enemy. You have set my feet in a broad place. This is a quotation from Exodus 3, verses 7 and 8. 
when Moses is before God in the burning bush, when God commissions Moses to deliver his people, and God says to Moses there in Exodus 3, 7, and 8, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the land of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land. A land flowing with milk and honey. David, in the midst of his suffering, David looks back. David looks back to the greatest deliverance story of the entire Old Testament. He looks back to God's deliverance of his people through the judgment of Egypt, through the sacrificial lamb's blood shed for Israel's sins, through, for the Red, crossing, the Red Sea crossing as they cross on dry land. He looks back to God's covenant faithfulness. He looks back to God's steadfast love shown in that event to know that God will deliver him too. And this is what we are to do. Only we look to the greater Exodus. We look to the greater Exodus that the Old Testament version was was just a shadow of. We look to the greater rescue and the redemption that God has accomplished for us in Jesus. God's ultimate answer to the suffering and injustice we experienced was not to despair and to escape it. It was not to ignore it. Not to tell us that we have to rise above it and conquer it like Beethoven thought. God's ultimate answer was to step out of glory himself, to take on the fullness of our broken humanity and to get his hands dirty and to get his face bloodied, to have his name tarnished and falsely accused and then receive the worst of physical and emotional abuse in our place. This was the real God's answer to suffering. You probably noticed it already. Verse 5, into your hand I commit my spirit. Jesus quoted these words as his last on the cross, a moment before dying. Jesus was the ultimate righteous sufferer. David is a picture of righteous suffering to some extent, but even in verse 10, David has to own up to the sin that's in his life. But Christ dies in complete perfection. A sinless sacrifice for the sins of the people. Jesus quotes verse 5, but just the first part. He stops after the first line. Why? Because God the Father didn't save him on the cross. He didn't deliver his son from death in that moment. Precisely so that we could say along with David in the second half of the verse, you have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. Three days later, God raises Jesus from the dead for all time. Death is no longer master over him and neither is suffering. 
But it is Jesus' resurrection from the dead that also means that he is with us in the valleys of our suffering. We can worship in the valley because Christ is in the valley. Augustine, that great theologian of the 4th and 5th centuries, he interprets verses 7 and 8 to say that God is faithful to provide for us great freedom in the midst of our suffering. In the valley of suffering, God brings us to broad stretches of freedom, in Augustine's words. This freedom is experienced the only way Christians can ever truly experience it. It's experienced by first tasting of the love of God. God's faithfulness to us in our distress in the persecution that we endure from others, in our agonizing war with temptations and habitual sins and addictions, it demonstrates again and again the power of Jesus' resurrection as He's faithful to us through it. And that provides unending love for us now, and it provides ultimate and consummate victory for us at His return, when we too are raised from the dead. And the comfort of this love sets us free, maybe not from all suffering, but it can set us free even now from fear. When we experience the gift of God's love made tangible to us in our suffering, it's then when we realize that His love conquers fear and it casts it out. When we taste His love taking us through suffering, when we can then have it proven to us through our experience, not just our faith, that nothing can separate us from the love of God. Neither height, nor depth, nor earthly powers, nor satanic powers, not even our own sin. And when you experience this, you are freed from slavery to the worst enemy of all. You are freed from fear. And you taste the invincibility that can only come with being convinced in your soul that you're truly loved even when all hell is breaking loose in your life around you. And so turn to worship in the valley and find your Savior there with you because of His grace through faith. In the name of the Father and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. And so, Father, we do pray and ask that even this week you would make this love shed abroad in our hearts by the power of the Holy Spirit because of what Christ has done, that you would make it known to us. That you would further convince us more and more of how deep and wide the love of Christ is that we can taste even of His presence with us in the valleys of our own obstacles and struggles and maybe even deep, deep loss and distress and depression. Father, of course, we would pray and ask every day that You would deliver us from our sufferings, but yet we know that sometimes You choose to take us through them longer than we'd like. And so our greater prayer is that if You choose to do that, and you choose to continue to take us through the hardships, 
through the suffering, through the valley that we've been trotting for a while, that we would, by your grace, suffer well, that we would, by your grace, be drawn to you in worship, and that in and through worship, in and through holding who you are before us, in and through committing ourselves to you, we would find the Lord Jesus Christ's mercy and grace to be more than sufficient to set us free from our fear, to set us free from our doubt. Do these things for us because you have loved us, not because we've earned them, not because we have somehow merited your favor, but simply because you are a kind and gracious God filled with loving kindness. We pray this in Jesus' name, by the Spirit. Amen.